thinking this morning, um, before everybody got here, it reminded me of uh, that um, Christmas pantomime from New Zealand where all the uh, children uh, are playing the parts of the angels and they're up in heaven and they're all talking about what God's going to do and coming up with suggestions. And there's this one boy who sits up the back who keeps saying, they won't be expecting that. So I'm sure you probably weren't all expecting me to be up here today. I certainly didn't last Sunday when Russ asked me to share. So just to commence, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say you're so good looking. (laughs) Some of you are better looking than others, but more importantly, can you now turn to the person next to you and say, Jesus loves you because that's more important. All right, so today we're continuing with the Kingdom Living series and following on from Tim. Where are you, Tim? They're right here. Where are you? Uh, Where are you? Um, Following on from Tim's great message about worship last week. And so we're going to have a look at another area. And uh, in particular, I want to share about living and growing in God's grace given the condition of the world and knowing that the last days are coming. So it's a pretty heavy topic, but we'll get into it. I'll just start by praying, and I know Russ prayed before, but Father, I just pray that you would speak through me today, that this would be your word, not my words. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us all ears to listen, eyes to see, as Ben spoke about a few weeks ago, that we would have eyes to see, Lord, and that our hearts would be softened, softened, to absorb what it is you want us to learn. Now, I'm actually going from the NIV Bible today. Now, uh, I have over 40 Bibles, believe it or not, and uh, I pour through a lot of them all the time. I know it's a lot of work. My go-to Bible is the King James Version because apparently that's supposedly the closest translation to the original translations that we have. But I'm going from the NIV today because I'm sure most people have that. Now, if you are taking notes or you have your Bibles ready, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter. So Peter's second epistle, his second letter, and um, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. I'm actually going to preach about that passage, the whole passage. Um, So to give us some context, Peter wrote two letters, as I said. And I want to start with a couple of verses about Peter, just to get a bit more of an idea about who he is. So if we get that first one up. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. Uh, That's actually the second one. Can we go to uh, Matthew 16, 18? That's better. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So just in context, Peter had just identified and acknowledged that Jesus was Christ. And then the second one again, he says, tells them that, uh, sorry, he says he's going to build the church upon Peter. Now, I actually think that he wasn't necessarily talking about Peter as a person. He's talking about that foundation, that believing in Christ. But in the second one, Jesus says to him, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny that you know me three times. Later in Galatians, Paul challenges Peter because Peter, James and John 
are preaching to the Gentiles and telling them that if they want to become Christian, they have to adhere to the old rules of eating kosher food, of circumcision and of the Sabbath. And Paul comes along and says, no, you've got this wrong. That's not what it's about. They're the old rules. That's the Old Testament. So he gets challenged. And you can imagine this happened in a public square. So it would have been pretty awkward when you've got three disciples and another one comes in. And for those of you who have seen the Chosen series, there's lots of arguments and different things that go on in that. So it's a lot more believable. And I actually think they probably did have lots of arguments and disagreements. But for Peter, he found himself living in the tension between two worlds. The Old Testament rules that he didn't want to let go of and what Jesus had told him and what the New Testament was going to be about. Does anyone have any thoughts on why Jesus chose Peter? Anybody? This is the interactive part? No. No. Not one. Good answer. Any others? The Holy Spirit? Possibly not as good looking as me, but anyway, that sounds good. Look, I actually think the reason he chose Peter was because Peter had a teachable heart. That was the thing. He had a teachable heart. And I think that's what we all need to have. Even though Peter kept getting it wrong, kept making mistakes, he learned. And that's what we've all got to do. We've got to learn. So I have three things I want to cover today. The first one is be aware and beware. The second one is keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And the third one is grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And if you read through 2 Peter chapter 3, you'll actually see all of that in there. So let's go to uh, verses 1 and 2, 1 and 2 in 2 Peter chapter 3. So dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. So if you just leave that there for a moment. So firstly, Peter's writing to them as a friend. Tells them it's his second letter. So he's he's known to them and they know who he is. And he says something remarkable. He says, I'm writing to you with reminders. And that's what it's all about. That's why we come to church every Sunday. It's so we can keep being reminded of how we should live. And he wants them to recall the words of the holy prophets. So who are these holy prophets? They're just the authors of the Old Testament. That's who they are. There's some notable ones, but generally it's just those authors of the Old Testament. But what's astonishing, and it's easy to miss in the opening passage, is that Peter places the apostles on the same footing as the Old Testament prophets. Think about that for a moment. They're on the same level. What he also does, he's not just talking about himself, he's talking about the apostles, plural. He's saying as a group, they have this authority that Jesus has given to them. Just as the prophets were commanded by God in the Old Testament covenants, the apostles are now covered by the covenants of the New Testament. Now, a covenant is different to a contract, and I know you've all heard this before. You buy or sell a house, it's a contract. 
the buyer and the seller doesn't necessarily know each other. They don't have to. But in a covenant relationship, that's personal. That's like a marriage. You give your marriage vows, you say your vows, it's personal. And that's what Jesus wants to have with us. He wants to have a personal relationship with him. And Peter understood that. They were writing, sorry, that their writing had the same authority. And he's not just talking about himself. But what's really amazing is that the, the apostles knew that they were actually writing scripture. Actually writing scripture. And what's insane about that for me is that those scriptures are relevant today. So we often hear, and I've heard it, oh, it was written 2,000 years ago for a time back then. That's not what Peter's telling us. Peter's telling us that they're relevant for us today. So if anyone challenges you and says that, you can go back to this scripture and say, here, plainly, it tells us that the scriptures are being written for us. Just like the Old Testament, the Torah, and all those were written for the generations to follow, these scriptures, they knew they were writing scripture, it was intended for us. So then Peter goes on in verse 3 and it says, can we go to uh, a bit further back? Above all, you must understand, don't worry, I'll read it out. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of time. So remember in the Old and New Testaments, God's told us what's going to happen. But against what God's revealed comes scoffers. Now this isn't a question, it's not a bland statement or a bland comment. This is a statement. He's telling them, Scoffers will come. And it's supported by 1 Timothy 4 in the first couple of verses. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical lies whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, today we're confronted by very, very smart people. We've got scientists, we've got all sorts of people, lecturers at university that have PhDs, and when I studied theology, every one of my lecturers had a PhD. They're smart people. But a few years down the track, I realised some of them didn't actually get it right. So some of these people, these smart people, these scientists, they want to deny the truth of the Bible. A hundred years ago, it wasn't really an issue. But of course, now we're living in totally different times. It's very perilous at the moment. We've got bushfires, we've got COVID, we've got droughts, we've got global warming, and we've got some countries on the, urge, on the verge of anarchy at the moment, South Africa, Afghanistan, all in trouble. Now, suddenly, more than any other time in history, we're confronted by smart people who don't believe in God and deny the truth of the Bible. And just on that, I'm going to diverge just for a second. One of the things as Christians that we do, and Louise and I did it, we bring our children up in faith. They go to Sunday school, they go to a Christian school, 
When they finish school, they go into university. Now, up until that point, they've been surrounded by people, very smart people, telling them God exists and God is real and the Bible is true. Then all of a sudden they get to uni and they have these other people who are really, really smart, all with PhDs, all denying the truth of the Bible. It's little wonder they get confused. So I think it's important that we remind our kids that there are those people out there who are going to test them. The one thing I know, though, you can't have a creation without a creator. And I heard this recently. Um, cats, as in pussy cats. You get big cats, little cats, black cats, white cats. There's one thing I know. You can't put a cat in front of a goldfish bowl and have that cat stare at the goldfish all day and it become a goldfish. It doesn't happen. And that's where science falls down. That's where evolution falls down. So then Peter addresses the issue of God's timing, and that's in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what seems like forever for us is just like a day for the Lord. God's eternal. We only exist in a point in time. People often use this verse to support their own ideas of prophetic wisdom. They look for clues for when judgment day is going to come. But God is eternal. He is not bound by time as we know it. Think about this. God's not late. Maybe we're just impatient. God's not late. Maybe we're just impatient. So what's God doing? He's waiting. He has a plan that will be fulfilled in his time, not ours. He wants everyone... Jews and Gentiles, believers, non-believers, to have the opportunity to be in relationship with him. So he wants the whole world to, be, to have that opportunity. We're nowhere, we're nowhere near that yet. Nowhere near it. But what God does here, he reveals his compassion for his creation, the glorious nature of who he is. He doesn't want any of us to perish. And that's why evangelism is so important. But that doesn't mean you have to go off to some far-flung country. You can do it in your homes, you can do it in, with your neighbours, you can do it at work, school, university, wherever and whenever an opportunity arises. Remember what Matthew 28, 19 says, Therefore, as you go, make disciples. Therefore, as you go, and I say, note it says up there, go and make disciples. And that's one, obviously, translation, but I think it's closer to say, as you go. So in your daily lives, go and make disciples. That's what we've got to do. That's what God's calling us to do. Now, I'm going to tell a little story as a detective and a PI in my previous life, one of the things I used to do was investigate burglaries, and I've investigated thousands of them, literally, thousands of burglaries. 
There's a particular type of cat bur a burglar that I did a few big investigations on, and they were cat burglars. No, yeah, too, I suppose I do like cats. No, I don't. Um, the thing about cat burglars is you can be at home down one end of your house and while you're feeling safe in your home in your little bubble, there's someone up the other end of the house who's climbed in through a window and they're stealing things. And I can tell you they're gone within a minute. They just go in, grab, and they're out of there and you don't even know they're there. And... That's how Peter tells us that Jesus will come. In verse 10 he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So it's that same thing. We're not going to be aware of it when, until it actually happens. It's going to come like a thief. He's reminding us that Jesus will return suddenly and without warning, without an appointment. On that day, those who have not repented... And by repented, I don't just mean ask for forgiveness, but those who have actually turned to Jesus and follow him. That's when he'll come. And it says, Not return to Jesus, will be consumed by fire and the surface of the earth will be destroyed, just like it was when the flood occurred in Noah's day. Then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You know, sin's an insidious thing. It's a flesh thing. We all want it. It's what Peter was talking about when he was trying to tell the Gentiles they had to abide by the old rules. We want rules. We want boundaries all around us. It makes us feel safe. Absolutely makes us feel safe. But that's not what God wants us to be. And it's an easy trap to fall into. Adding to Tim's great message last week, there was a sprinkle of wisdom from Russ he occasionally has that. He said, One of the ploys of the enemy is to distract us so we take our eyes off Jesus and lose focus. And it's so easy. And I want to share another story just to illustrate that. Some years ago, I had an opportunity to apply for what I would think was what I thought was my dream job. So I applied for this position and uh, about a week later, I got Telephone call at five to five on a Friday afternoon thinking, uh, that's not going to be good news because that's what people normally do. They ring up at five to five so you can stew all weekend. Um, but that wasn't the case. I was actually offered the position. And so I was pretty happy about all of that. Then the following, during the following week, Louise said to me, how much are you getting paid for this job? Do you know, I hadn't even thought about that when I applied for the job, when I went for the interview, when I got the phone call, it wasn't even in my mind. That's not what it was about. I just wanted this job. It was a dream job for me. So I sent off an email asking what it was, and unfortunately it was going to take a bit of time to get back to me. And on the, at the end of that week on the Friday, I had to go into hospital for a procedure. And... Um, I came out at about 10 o'clock and Louise took me home and she said, have you heard about that job? What's going on? You're supposed to be starting next week. And I said, oh, I'll leave it till after lunch. Things will happen. Anyway, the contract came and I read it and there it was. But before I got home, I'd been given a, a sheet by the, the hospital and they said, don't drive cars, don't operate machinery, 
don't sign anything, don't do any business transactions, because I'm still under the influence of anaesthesia. Probably am now, some of you might think. <laughs> so me being me and uh, thinking I was pretty good and knew what I was doing, I looked at this contract and I read through it and there it was, the level that I was going to be employed on and the rate of pay. And I thought, well, I'll do my due diligence, having been in the justice system all my life. I'll check up and see what this is all about. So I did. And there, shock horror, I was being put on the lowest grade. And I thought at the time, that's just not right. I had a degree. I'd, done, I'd had years of experience in this particular role. So I rang up and I said, I don't think this is right. That afternoon, I got a phone call back saying, look, we can't make a decision. You've raised an issue that we have to look at. Our boss can't sign off on it. He's not here. We'll have to wait till next week. So I spent the whole weekend stewing because I suddenly realised that what had been my dream job had all of a sudden become about justice, self-righteousness. The devil had got me when I was unaware, when I wasn't expecting it. I'd been told not to do certain things by the hospital and I went ahead and did it. And that's how insidious the devil can be. So on the Monday I get a phone call saying, look, we're sorry, Paul, but because you've raised this issue, we need to have a look at all of this, which meant it could take two to three weeks. Go to lawyers, they're going to have to pour over all of this because we could be doing the wrong thing by all our employees. So I felt gutted even more. I thought, I'm not even going to get this job. They're going to have to re-advertise it because they've mucked it up. I did end up getting it in the end, which was good. But it showed me how self-righteousness can work and it showed me how quickly the devil can attack you when you least expect it. And the big thing that got me is that I've always been about justice. All my life it's been about justice for people. And I realised at that point that sometimes self-righteousness is clothed in justice. And we think what we're doing is right and it's not. So how do we as believers stand in the midst of all that's going on around us when we live in a worldly kingdom overshadowed by darkness and try to be the light of Christ? And here's my second point. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Peter says it this way in verse 11. You ought to, have to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. But how do we do this? Firstly, we need to recognise what's counterfeit. Now, some of you who are a bit older than the younger generation here will recall a time when we had bank tellers and they used to go through the money counting it. Do you remember that? You could see them. They were so fast. And all of a sudden they'd stop and they'd pull a note out and they'd look at it and they'd feel it, the size of it, the shape of it because they were so good at counting money and knowing what the feel and the touch of it was, if it didn't feel right, they knew there was something wrong. Now I call that gut feeling. I'm a really firm believer in gut feeling. If it doesn't look right, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. 
What it is really is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit warning you that there's something not right. Now, could I have five quick volunteers? Tim, any others? Come on, just five volunteers. All right, Tim, if you want to stand down here, and I'm sorry, this is going to be a bit difficult. I want you to go in a V behind Tim. Come a bit closer. In a V, in a V. And I know this is difficult for you and you to see, but we don't have enough space. So, this man's Jesus. You see him? (laughs) Do you notice anything about him and me? You can be envy. What else have we got? You can be envy, yeah. Uh, I want... uh, You can be lust up the back. Pride and greed. So these are four of the seven deadly sins. Now, if I stand back here... Not only do I see Jesus, but I see all those other things that are in our lives, all those other things that distract us. But as I walk closer and get even closer and closer, look up, Jesus, don't look down. (laughs) Look straight ahead. As I get closer to Jesus, (laughs) they they disappear. So you've got to focus on Jesus. All these things that are there to distract us will disappear if we focus on Jesus. But I want to be Jesus. <laughs> did you notice? Did you notice that Jesus is the only one without hair? What does that tell you about the others? Go, go and sit down. <laughs> Very clever. So as I said. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Live in the Holy Spirit. Grow in him. Don't be distracted by the naysayers of this world. And how do we do that? Read the Bible. Pray. Come to church every week. It's a chance to get together. Be in a home group. Immerse yourself in worship, as Tim said last week. But most of all, be in a personal relationship with Jesus. Now you'd be happy I'm almost at the end. Only a few more minutes to go. Now my third and final point is that. Grow in grace of Jesus. And I wanted to briefly talk about that. What is grace? Grace is undeserved, unmerited favour. It's like a tree that bears fruit. If you pick the fruit... Without tending to the tree, it will die. Feed the roots and the tree will grow big and strong. So for us, if our foundation is right, we can forget about the rest. Just focus on Jesus and he'll take care of it all. So get your foundations right. That's one of the things, reasons... Sorry. When you start trusting in your own ability, you're trusting in yourself instead of relying on God. If you do this, then you are falling away from grace. Now, that's one of the reasons that we do communion. It's a grace thing. It's a reminder to us of that incredible sacrifice of grace that God did for us through Jesus on the cross. 
Where's our pianist, Matt? Going to come up. Now, I'm almost at the end. Louise and I have always loved theatre productions. When I was at school, I even got a drama award to go off to uh, acting college, which I didn't take up. Um, and just while I'm on that, when Louise was at school, there was this friend of hers who kept saying to her, why don't you go out with my brother? Why don't you go out with my brother? And she kept saying, no, 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 no. Anyway, the next year they went along and saw him in a NIDA production, and NIDA's the National Institute of Dramatic Arts. And this young man, Louise, this Louise's friend wanted her to go out with was Mel Gibson. Now, how lucky is Louise that she got me? <laughs> hey, she could have had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. Instead, she got a blanket, a TV, and a country kitchen. That's what I took into our marriage. <laughs> anyway, we love going to the theatre. We've been to the theatre in Sydney, in Melbourne. Uh, we've been to the opera in Italy. We've been to the West End in London and seen some great productions. Rub it in, that's right, sorry. Well, they're all things of the past going overseas. One of the great theatre productions is Les Miserables. It's an incredible story. And the main character in it is Jean Valjean. Now, Jean Valjean is a thief. I've just realised now that there's a real tint in here about policing and <laughs> But Jean Valjean is a thief. And he gets out of jail and there's Inspector Javert. Now, he used to be a jail warden and he's become a policeman. But he wants to get Jean Valjean. He wants him back in prison for the rest of his life and he doesn't care what he has to do to get him there. So Valjean gets released from prison and as happens with most people who are released from prison, they have nowhere to go, they have no money, they have no support systems. So he ends up knocking on the door of the church and the bishop answers and lets him in and he stays the night and uh, the next morning Jean Valjean leaves that church but he's managed to grab a bag of stuff that he's stolen out of the church. They call it sacrilege just by the way, stealing from a church. So he's grabbed this bag of silver and different things and he's out on the street and of course Javert's got him. He's been waiting for this moment. He's been watching and he comes up and grabs him and he opens the bag and he goes, oh, I've got you, you rotten thief. I sound like Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther, don't I? Peter Sellers. <laughs> I've got you, you rotten thief. And he says, all I have to do is take you back and get the bishop to agree to prosecute you and you're gone. And he goes back to the church with Valjean knocks on the door and the bishop answers the door and he says, I've got him, he's stolen from the church and he opens the bag and the bishop says, what have you done, Valjean? You forgot to take the silver candlestick holders. I gave them to you, why didn't you take them? And of course, at that particular moment, he has the most incredible act of grace bestowed upon him by this bishop. It was his ticket to freedom. In the end of that story, Valjean is so affected by it, he ends up giving his life for the young revolutionaries. Now that's grace. 
Now I'd like to ask you, can you recall a time when you've been shown true grace or such grace that it brought you to your knees? Have you ever experienced true humility? Maybe you've had the opportunity to extend grace to someone else. We've all fallen into this trap and I have definitely, walking past homeless people in the street. I don't do that anymore. I try and stop. And I don't always give them money because at the end of the day, that's not going to solve their problem. And one of the things I've found when I stop and talk to people is that they're blown away by the fact that someone actually shows some interest in who they are. And that's all they want. That's what they want. Remember in Acts, Peter, I think of Peter and John, Acts 1, outside the, the temple, there was a lame guy begging alms and walks up. And the, the interesting thing about this is I'm sure Jesus walked past this guy every day and didn't do anything. But he wanted to wait for Peter and John to have this opportunity to show that they were chosen. And he says to this guy, I, we haven't got any money we can't give you, but what we can give you is Jesus. It's so simple. It's so easy. So at the start today, I said I had three points I wanted to make. Be aware and beware. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And I don't think I could put it any better than this. The last couple of verses of 2 Peter 3. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawlessness and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sure some of you might like some prayer. Uh, and I know Russ spoke about uh, this morning about not wanting prayer at that point. But if, any, if anybody does want prayer, I'm sure there were people up the front. We're all confronted by issues every day. But if we focus on Jesus, if we continue to pray and if we continue to ask for help, we'll get through it. We'll get through it, on our, not on our own, we'll get through it with Jesus, but we also get through it collectively. So let's work at that.